welcome everyone to the one world one health update rickettsiosis webinar this is the 14th live webinar session thank you for joining us live on social media uh, just some some introductions and some uh, house housekeeping rules for question and answer uh, like usual please type your questions in the slido app we will try to address as many questions as possible with regard to cpd points all frontliners, healthcare professionals, and allied health team, remember to collect your CPD points by filling up the online attendance form. This website link was broadcasted on the screen before we started the session. In case you missed it, the link is on our Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Please double check your email address before submitting. For the slides, notes after the session, after the webinar, the presenter slides, a summary of the panel discussion and the Q&A will be made available on all of our social media, websites, and email newsletters. Uh, if you'd like to re-watch this session, you can go to our Clinical Updates in COVID-19 YouTube channel, listen on our podcast channel, or you can read the e-book when it's available. With regards to today's uh, webinar, we want to discuss about One World, One Health Update, which is Rickettsiosis. And for the panelists for this week, uh, uh, I'm, I'm Dr. Suresh, I'm the moderator of my division Blue. And we have Dr. Timothy William and Dr. Mohammed Yazid Abda. Just some brief introduction for both of them. Uh, Timothy William is, uh, is a fellow colleague, he's a senior clinical researcher, is uh, uh, with the Malaysian Ministry of Health, CRC, Kota Kinabalu, uh, from 2008. He's also head of infant disease and clinicals. Kota Kinabalu. He is a president of Infidelity Society of uh, Kota Kinabalu Sabah. He is a fellow of Royal College of Physicians Edinburgh and honorary resource, research associate with the Menzies School of Health Research, Darwin. He was awarded the 2017 Medeka Award for his work on Nolasai malaria. His research interests include malaria, tuberculosis, rickettsiosis, melioidosis, and dengue. With regards to Mohammad Yazid, our second speaker, uh, he's a senior scientific officer in the Research Laboratory in the NCID in Singapore. He's a senior scientist there and provides scientific biosecurity uh, biosafety advice on ongoing projects. He's also actively involved in a number of projects as uh, 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 that involves SARS coronavirus, COVID-19, CREs, bacteriophages, respiratory diseases, and of course, rickettsial diseases. Uh, since his research career has be begun, Yasir has published over 27 papers in peer-reviewed journal journals and authored a book chapter Rickettsia. He has discovered a new species of bacteria, Rickettsia gravisii, and tick Ixodes wiley. He's also, uh, he's, al he's also isolated and characterized the first description of uh, Barma forest virus outside of Australia. And uh, for today, we have two, these two speakers talking about this. And the first speaker, Timothy William from Venegas Kotekinabalu, will, will talk about rickettsiosis as major etiologies of uh, unrecognized acute febrile illness uh, in, in Sabah, East Malaysia. With that, I will, I will pass it on to Timothy to start his presentation. Timothy? Um, thank you, Dr. Suresha, for the very kind introduction. Okay, um, I'll be presenting on our prospective study that we conducted in Kudan and Kotamardu in Sabah on rickettsiosis as a major etiology of unrecognized acute febrile illness in Sabah. And these are the, our list of investigators and authors uh, for this paper. It was, it was not an easy project to do and I'd like to convey my appreciation to everyone in the team. Uh, this is a bit of background on acute febrile illness in Southeast Asia. Success, we have success in the reduction in human-only malaria species. However, the etiology of other causes of acute febrile illness is still very poorly understood. There's difficulties uh, in uh, diagnosis, there's unclear epidemiology and treatment protocols. And acute febrile illness uh, review in Southeast Asia, there have been 100 studies since 2012, whereby children, dengue accounted for about 50%, uh, leptospirosis 27%, orange susugamushi 23%, and salmonella typhi 
children alone are dengue, staph aureus, then non-typoidal salmonella, salmonella typhi, orientia, sundamushi. So this is the paper in the Lancet of Global Health uh, on 927 clinical presentations uh, among, uh, nine, among, sorry, among uh, 815 adults. I just want to go through here. For acute systemic infections, no uh, pathogen was identified in 127 uh, uh, patients. So substantial proportion of patients with acute systemic infections, as you all know, even in your own practice, we are unable to identify the pathogen. And in this case, there were seven cases of uh, scrub typhus, orientia, susugamoshi, and SFG rickettsia. I apologize for this because these are all tongue twisters. Um, uh, so just a few cases that were detected and among the acute respiratory infections, there are only about 14. Now, what about Malaysia? Zero service have documented rickettsiosis in Malaysia. Scrub typhus the most frequent in urban areas. SFG uh, are in rural uh, areas. And the typhus group, uh, rickettsiosis, uh, are unknown. Rickettsiosis are nationally reported, but no routine diagnostics are available. I, I, I think they all share the problem of getting a, a proper diagnosis of rickettsia. Uh, there were only 53 infections that were reported nationally, two of them in Sabah during 2009 to 2015. So, you know, only 53 infections for this notifiable disease. And um, Orientia susugamoshi or scrub typhus, nationally 0.6 cases per million people nationally and 0.8 in Sabah. These were the ones that were reported. So this was the last big study that actually was done in Malaysia on febrile illness. This was done in 1984 and presented uh, in a paper in the American Society of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene. And in, in this paper, this was more than what, 20, uh, almost 30 years ago, uh, 30 years ago, where scrub typhus uh, was the most frequent diagnosis, 19.3% of all illnesses, followed by typhoid and paratyphoid, leptospirosis and malaria. So you can see even back then, scrub typhus was most frequent diagnosis. However, now we see that we seldom make a diagnosis of scrub typhus. So the transmission of uh, rickettsial infection is by a mite, uh, leptosporidium, and it's all carried by uh, uh, rats uh, and rodents. These are our study methods. We enroll uh, patients from two district hospitals in northern Sabah, East Malaysia, Kudat, the population was 86,000, and Kotamarudu, 69,000. Uh, febrile uh, patients of uh, more than uh, 30 degrees, uh, uh, patients with non-malaria AFI from December 2013 to January 2015. So approximately just slightly more than one year. And reference standard testing for rickettsiosis. These are the study sites uh, for Kota Marudu and Kudat in Sabah. These are the district hospitals. So our study methods, uh, all patients were referred to the study if they were having fever of more than 38 degrees. We included patients who were febrile within 48 hours of admission, excluded those who are uh, afebrile, and of course those who refused uh, lost, they were those who refused or lost to follow up. So in the, the, the first visit, uh, we did an examination, clinical history, uh, epidemiology, lab investigations, serum whole blood and whole blood, and all Buffy state, Buffy uh, blood samples. And we asked them to come for a convalescent visit, a clinical history, examination, and serum blood sample collection was done. These are our diagnostic methods. Uh, the serum was screened by immunofluorescence assay for IgG1 in 80, OT, SFGR, and TGR. Uh, so uh, uh, just remember the short forms for it. Uh. Um, uh, convalescent uh, and if positive pet acute sera. Uh, positives were titrated to 2,560. Acute phase sera screen at 1 in 40 for IgM by IFA. And we also did PCR for OT, SFGR, and TGR. 
So as you can see, uh, 557 patients were screened, uh, 426 patients were enrolled, both in Kuda and uh, Kota Marudu, 131 were excluded. Uh, those who attended follow-up were 183. They had available samples for acute phase, convalescent phase, or both and or both serum samples, and 128 were whole whole blood or buffy code. However, 243 did not uh, attend follow-up. So for them, we had uh, uh, 240 acute phase samples and 221 whole blood or buffy code. And then we had acute and convalescent phase of PET serum IgG serologic testing, convalescent phase IgG serologic uh, testing only, PCR, uh, acute phase IgM serologic testing, and acute phase IgG serologic testing only. So um, these are the results. Testing for IgG by AFA confirmed rickettsial infection. So these were uh, the total number of those who were uh, uh, acute and past infections. 126 out of 354, 36% of patients were positive. Uh, scrub typhus, 96 or 27% out of this. Spotted fever group, uh, 26 or 7%. Typhus groups, rickettsiosis, 25 or 7%. And yet, uh, patients with two infections. Uh, OT and SFGR 6, uh, OT and TGR 8 patients, SFGR and TGR 1 patient, OT, SFGR and NTGR 3 patients. So 36% of these patients uh, who enrolled had either acute or previous infection, uh, previous uh, rickettsial infections. So these are the confirmed acute rickettsiosis, defined as PET, fourfold IgG, titer, rise to more than 160 in 38 out of 145, which are 26% of the patients. Okay, so they had acute, confirmed, uh, these were confirmed cases, confirmed acute rickettsiosis, uh, OT23, SFGR9, TGR4, uh, uh, OT and SFGR1, OT and TGR1, and PCR results were positive in 11 out of 319 patients, or 3% of the patients. We did PCR, uh, uh, OT1, spotted fever 8, and uh, typhus group rickettsia 2. Possible, uh, unlike the, the uh, confirmed cases, for possible acute rickettsiosis, we had 37 out of 354, or 10% of the patients. So these are the distributions. This is the, the tip uh, uh, Borneo. Um, Kudat and Kota Marudu, uh, these are the regions that uh, where we had the, 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 the cases. So they're all distributed around the surrounding areas of the, the uh, supply the district hospital. So these are the <coughs> demographics confirmed and probable. Uh, the males accounted for about 63 patients of confirmed acute rickettsial infections and 62% of probable acute rickettsial uh, infections. Children, uh, 16 in the confirmed group, and sorry, eight in the confirmed group, uh, and three in the probable group. This was uh, statistically uh, significant. Uh, P-value for confirmed or probable acute versus no infection. So, um, the, what are the signs and symptoms of these patients? Headache and dizziness. Headache and dizziness, uh, the p-value for confirmed or probable ac acute versus no infection was significant. So many of them presented with headache, dizziness, uh, hearing loss, and also vomiting. But of course, you can see this whole list of uh, signs and symptoms were actually represented in, in the infections, which means to say that we cannot uh, differentiate these disease from dengue or leptospirosis or or uh, malaria or others, just based on the clinical signs and symptoms alone. Uh, one notable, we did not find any cases of, of SCAR, uh, which is uh, classically described in a rickettsia of scrub typhus. Okay. The, uh, the rest of the, yeah, the, the, the signs were actually very uh, non-specific, uh, which you can also find for uh, other infections as well. 
Uh, these are the epidemiological features, rickettsial infection, acute or past versus no uh, rickettsial infection. Uh, look at the age uh, or steadily significant. Most of them were 43 versus no rickettsial infection at 34. Uh, children less than 15, 9% uh, versus 32%. Resides in a village, 67% uh, uh, no rickettsial infection, 84%. Uh, and they were rubber tappers, uh, farmers, and spend more time in the forest. So these are some of the risk factors of a person getting rickettsial infection as compared to people who did not have rickettsial infection. Okay. Laboratory features comparing rickettsial and non-rickettsial, again, we really couldn't find much difference. Uh, uh, of course, we, we, we look at uh, neutropenia. Uh, the, uh, it was not statistically significant, uh, less than 1.5, you only had one out of 44 cases that showed uh, neutropenia. Thrombocytopenia, 11 or 23% uh, of patients versus non-rickettsial infection. You get to see thrombocytopenia, but you cannot really differentiate it from uh, the other infections. And acute kidney injury. Okay. Um, no patient had a provisional, none of these patients had a provisional diagnosis of acute rickettsial infection. So no one was diagnosed as acute rickettsial infection, nor were they suspected of having so. Now, diagnosis among those with confirmed acute rickettsiosis includes dengue, 14%. 12% were diagnosed as acute undifferentiated fever, 12% complete quiet pneumonia, 10% urosepsis, 8% leptospirosis, 8% gastroenteritis. Among the rickettsial cases, only 2 or 4% actually received doxycycline. Okay, so they were not diagnosed as uh, rickettsial, but they received doxycycline, but they received it because they had a provisional diagnosis of gastroenteritis. So the number of cases are lightly underestimated. Mild cases may not have been admitted. Uh, they were treated in the outpatient public discharge. And severe cases, we also do not know. They may have been transferred to Queen Elizabeth Hospital or may have died. So this is something that a, a research gap that we need to look at the patients who are ill, uh, who may have rickets here. Now, uh, the mortality for cases that are untreated can be as high as 7%, not based on this study, but Based on other studies, if you don't treat rickettsia, about 7% of people may actually die. So these are conclusions. Now, this is important. The adjusted incidence rickettsiosis is 15 cases per 100,000 uh, people per year compared to reported incidence of 0.08, which means to say there it, it, it is more than 200 times, or roughly uh, about 200 times more uh, than uh, what is actually reported. Rickettsiosis are a common cause of AFI, 26%. It's quite a substantial number, particularly scarf typhus. The clinical and epidemiological features are non-specific. Acute phase IgM is insensitive for acute infections. So we need accurate point of care tests and unsuspected rickettsiosis are untreated and this is dangerous. So therefore, we need improved diagnostic tools and we need it urgently. In their absence, we uh, clinicians need to have an increased clinical suspicion and consider using empirical doxycycline, especially for people who have high risk of developing the disease. And this might avert uh, disease progression and death. We also need to do prospective studies with PET serology to determine the burden of untreated rickettsiosis across Malaysia. This, and also the earlier paper that I showed you uh, in uh, 1983. We have made more, more cases of rickettsiosis than we know. So with that, I'd like to thank you very much. And I would like to acknowledge and thank our patients who participated in the study. The funding came from our Ministry of Health, the Australian government. And we'd like to thank the organizations as well, CRC, Menzies, and IDSKK, and these, all our uh, collaborators, uh, uh, Dr. Giri, uh, Dr. Gopikpin, uh, Senior Nick Anstey, and uh, of course, uh, Matthew Gregg, uh, Steve Downer, and Megan Rella. With that, I'd like to thank you very much for your kind attention. Um, thank you, Timothy. I mean, I mean uh, uh, leptospirosis, many of us have not been diagnosing it. In fact, uh, since we are not suspecting it, we are not sending for blood investigations. And uh, 
increasingly the labs are actually discontinuing the tests that is required to diagnose uh, rickettsiosis. I think uh, your study will help us uh, bring back rickettsiosis in the map so that uh, our diagnostic capacity comes back again. Um, and, uh, and, and, and I think uh, the other thing that we will have to look at will be is uh, looking at the severe cases and see how much of uh, mortality uh, that that uh, rickettsiosis is causing and, and we are missing. Uh, what I will do is I will, I will move on to the next uh, next speaker and then then we can handle handle questions uh, uh, together uh, with, from the from the public. So the next speaker, of course, is Mohammad Yazid Abdar uh, from from NCID Singapore, and he is going to talk about rickettsiosis out of sight and out of mind. Uh, Yazid, please. Thank you, Suresh, for the introduction. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Yazid, Yazid Abdad, and I work with the National Center for Infectious Diseases in Singapore. Talk on rickettsia and the epidemiology of it. So I've, I've come up with a quite simple, straightforward, uh, hopefully something that everyone from a general... Just to quickly um, introduce rickettsia. Now, rickettsia organisms are not new to science or medicine. We've known about it since the very start of the 20th century. And we have attributed to um, we have attributed it to a lot of outbreak, um, large, large um, epidemics in history from the Black Plague to typhus outbreaks. Breaks in Julius. I've seen courses where rickettsial information is actually disseminated to medical students. So it's not something new, and it is part of the coursework in many of the medical schools, renowned medical schools in our region. He died as a result of rickettsia typhi, which he was working on and trying to isolate. He did successfully isolate it, and because of his work in discovering rickettsia and sacrificing his life um, in, in, in his dedication towards discovering and uh, uncovering a lot of about rickettsias, he, the genus itself was named after him. I think Dr. Yazid just disconnected. Uh, so we, we, will, we will wait for Yazid to uh, uh, come back online. Um, uh, while waiting for him, we will, we will use the opportunity to drill Timothy regarding this. Uh, <laughs> Timothy, uh, I was surprised that, uh, you know, uh, without more, many of them did not get treatment with doxycycline. Uh, is it because of azithromycin? Because we use azithromycin for many of the infections. We think that's why without doxy, there was no adverse outcome in the study group. Uh, no, no, I, I, I don't really think so, Suresh, because azithromycin is more difficult to get in the district hospitals. Okay. You know, so it, it's not because of that. I think they they were probably they were probably treated with catriaxone and all that, and they got better on their own, like, You know, having said that, we do not know the number of cases that were transferred to tertiary hospital, Queen Elizabeth Hospital, patients who didn't get better. So that, that's why it's important uh, to suspect, you know, I know it's difficult to diagnose, but to suspect rickettsia because there is a, there's, there's a therapeutic uh, difference in the way we treat. We will give a different antibiotic. So um, my concern is, you know how, how it is, you know, if uh, caprizone doesn't work, then you go to the tazosin and you go to meropenem, you know, especially in the tertiary hospitals uh, when the patient doesn't recover. So, uh, and when that happens, it could either be a, a you know, viral infection, but uh, we want to show that in the district hospital, I mean, they were ill enough to be admitted, you know, so if they, uh, you know, you don't simply admit patients, so these patients are ill enough to be admitted, and uh, we want people to, you know, we hope that people consider this even by the, by the role of a dice, you know, by the role of a dice, if it's non-malaria and non-dengue, uh, and you can't get a, a microbiological diagnosis, there's a high chance that it may be rickettsia. So uh, consider using doxycycline and uh, actually in very severe uh, cases of rickettsiosis, we actually need IV doxycycline. Since we don't have IV doxycycline, to consider IV azithromycin. If all your cultures come back as negative, all your cultures come back as negative. Uh, just to the audience uh, out there, uh, please type your questions in the Slido app. And we can we can address your questions uh, as they come in while we're waiting for Yazid to get off, get back online. Uh, so when, when I when when I treat 
rickettsia, you know, what I used to think of is normal white cell count fevers. Um, um, if they have, uh, if they're not dengue, if it's not malaria, rickettsia is something that I used to think of. But I see in your study, the white cell count didn't come out very significant. Yes, um, that, that's one of the things that uh, were, uh, you know, we, the, the, the classical um, view is that uh, in these diseases, the, the, the white cell count will be low, you know, the white cell count will be low. Uh, having said that, you know, they, they, when we look at it, the, the white cell count was not low, it was normal, but it was not high either, Suresh. Okay. You, know, you didn't get a leukocytosis uh, compared to it. You, let's say you get leptospirosis, uh, where, where often you have a, a, a leukocytosis. So, okay, I can get it back online. I think we will let him let him start again. Yes, it. Uh, okay? I'm sorry about that. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, which slide did I stop at? You, I think the uh, you you showed us uh, Mr. Rickettsia. Okay. Rickets. Oh, okay. So it's like four, right? Yeah. Was it this one? Okay, we can we can start from here then. Okay. So, um, sorry, I got cut off. So what what I was saying is. Uh, Calcium organisms are part of the alpha proteobacteria group of bacteria. If you are familiar with the taxonomy on how bacteria are classified. So alpha and gamma proteobacteria are generally, for the most part of it, intracellular bacteria. So some of the genera listed there would be very familiar to you, such as Rickettsia and Orentia, which Dr. Timothy has just talked about earlier. Some of you may be familiar with Wubakia, which is being um, used in Singapore and Australia to use... Um, to neuter mosquitoes or to control mosquito populations. You have alikia and anaplasma, both are zoonotic um, organisms, mainly from dogs, and also Coxiella bonetti, which is a huge problem for the cattle industry, okay, and a lot of other livestock as well. So a lot of these um, organisms are intracellular bacteria, and what that means is that it requires a whole cell to reproduce. It's unable to survive or last long in the environment on their own, which is not unlike viruses. However, the major difference between viruses and rickettsias is that rickettsias have got a proper cell wall and a cell membrane, and they have got um, nucleus and also vacuoles. However, they are not able to reproduce on their own. They have to hijack their host um, cellular machinery. So work on rickettsias are restricted in BSL-3 laboratories worldwide. Okay, this is, this is um, quite a standard. And the main reason for this is that in, at some point in history, a number of countries has actually tried to weaponize rickettsias. And one of the main rickettsias that they attempted to weaponize was rickettsia proaziki, along with others such as Coxella, Bernetti, and so on. And thus, um, countries like Singapore, um, the US, they require rickettsia to be worked on in a secure and protected location. Now, rickettsias, though we don't really hear much of it in the general media and so on, is actually widely distributed worldwide. It's found on all continents except Antarctica, uh, and uh, mainly acarids and, and insects. And acarids refers to ticks and mites. Infection can occur from direct contact with infected materials, such as the fecal matter that fleas leave on your skin. Um, so rickettsia typhi is actually transmitted not from the flea bite, but actually from the fecal material on your skin where it enters the pores or you have a, a cut on the surface of your skin. Um, and thus it requires exposure to the open epidermal layer or mucosal surfaces. And thus laboratory acquired infections are typically quite rare. However, it has occurred in the past. So this map um, is from a publication from me and colleagues re recently where we reviewed the work um, done by our other colleagues worldwide. And this sort of tries to summarize the different rickettsias worldwide. So if you look just alone within Asia itself, there's a number of rickettsias that do afflict us potentially. Here in Southeast Asia, we are looking at at least five to six different rickettsia uh, species. Some of them is Rickettsia helongingensis that was originally discovered in China. Rickettsia japonica, as the name implies, it's from Japan. And we also have um, Rickettsia conori, subspecies Indica conori and Israelensis, and also Rickettsia honii. 
Orange shirt susu gamoshi is a big problem here, here in Southeast Asia. As I mentioned in the slide before, during World War II, it was one of the major causes of mortality and morbidity among soldiers, aside from malaria and dengue. Okay, so restriction on containment level makes Rickettsia challenging for scientists and clinicians to work in. And the disease cause uh, generally called spotted fever, uh, typhus fever, or scrub typhus. And it depends on the organism that infects the patient. However, diagnostics of rickettsial disease can be a challenge if you are trying to differentiate between the three different um, pathogen types of pathogen. So the next point, transmission via bites, I've already mentioned before by hematophagous vectors. Sorry if I'm using big words here. Uh, <laughs> but hematophagous vectors mainly mean um, they are insects that bite and, and consume blood from their host. And when I say host, it doesn't have to be humans. You can also refer to animals. Um, one thing to note is that the disease does not require a high infectious dose. It only requires a single organism to get past the immune system to eventually cause disease, which is known as Q fever. Now, the reservoir for rickettsial pathogens can either be the vectors that transmit them themselves or small mammals that inhabit, um, that, are, that place host to the vectors. Work has been done to investigate the role of dogs, wild pigs, um, and various other feral animals, large mammals, if they can be viable reservoirs. But in most studies, it has, not, it has been shown that such um, large animals are not sustainable. Um, vectors tend to be not specific, specific for each rickettsial species. However, there are some rickettsial species that has been reported to be transmitted by only a single vector species. Now, we believe the reason for this is because they have shared a significant period of time evolving together. And, and at some point, they have um, sort of evolved and have a form of symbiotic relationship. And thus, they are not able to transfer or be carried by other vector species. Now, reservoir transmission, which is transmission from one tick to another um, via shared feeding area, um, sexual transmission, and so on, and also vertical transmission from parent to young. So this is to show a picture of a feral pig. So that's the face of a feral pig that um, we were doing a study on back in Western Australia many years ago. Um, and what, what I'm trying to highlight here is that there's two different tick species close to each other and they're sharing a single bite site. Emblyoma trigotatum and Ixodes osphialensis. Both of them are known to infest um, the large mammals, especially the kangaroos, the wileys, the quokkas. And Emblyoma trigotatum has got 100% uh, prevalence for Rickettsia grazii, while Ixodes osphialensis has probably got a prevalence of anywhere between five to 30%. When I took back both ticks to the lab, both of them were positive for Rickettsia grazii. So as you can see, just sharing the bite site would, call, would allow for the transmission of the bacteria from one tick to another, and thus establishing that other tick potentially as, as a vector for the disease. Rickettsia, as Dr. Timothy William had said, shares many symptoms with other febrile illness. Okay, uh, one of the main markers is rash, and also, as he mentioned, escar. However, he didn't see any escars in any of his patients. So this is quite, it is actually quite uncommon. It's actually quite common not to see any escars in patients, and also not to be able to see any rash. Um, unfortunately, as these would be very good markers to actually differentiate rickettsias from other febrile-causing pathogens. Now, thus, using syndromic diagnosis can be a challenge. As a result, we try or are trying to attempt uh, various methods of diagnosis in the laboratory. However, a lot of these methods can be expensive and require a certain level of training which is not available in most locations. Okay, so um, when it comes to the laboratory, there's many, many ways you, we can do rickettsial um, diagnosis. And depending on the blood, uh, sorry, depending on the patient, uh, 
sample that is available to you and what the patient is willing to give. So you can get, we can do diagnosis using dry blood spot. You don't have to require to do a bleed on the patient with a full blood tube. Uh, blood serum um, biopsies, you can put them into culture to try and isolate. You can do PCR on various, various parts and types. Now, when, when we do diagnosis of um, patients, usually in a lot of countries that are aware of rickettsias in the US and Australia, they would encourage the patient to bring in the tick that they pulled off uh, or caused the SHR to appear. Um, just like similarly, if you are bitten by a snake, they expect you to be able to describe the snake or at the very least, if you can't describe the snake, you know, try, try to identify or, or see what, what the snake looks like and so on. So there are various methods to do it. However, a lot of this require quite significant investment by the laboratory that wants to introduce um, rickettsial diagnostics. And if the laboratory, or, however, has already got this in place, then to be able to do it will be quite relatively easy. So one of the main ones, the gold standard is IFA, immunofluorence assay, as Dr. Timothy Williams has used for his study. Um, this is part of um, diagnosis using serology, and recently the use of ELISA has become more widely accepted and more um, popular among some of the laboratories I collaborate with. So to the right, you can see a picture of an IFA, and the, the trick to this is that a lot of new staff that we try to train usually are unable to differentiate between background staining and the actual rickettsial bodies. If you see the little bright dots that are actual, actual rickettsial bodies themselves, they're really tiny and are approximately two microns long and about one micron wide. Now with IFA, to have a diagnosis that the patient was infected by a rickettsial pathogen, they need to have a convalescent sample with a fourfold rise in antibody theta. However, with IFA, we are unable to determine the species that cause the disease because there's a high cross-reactivity rate between species of the same serogroups. So the three, the serogroups, just to remind you, are typhus group, spotted fever group, and scrub typhus. So the other method is by PCR, polymerase chain reaction. And there's a lot of real-time PCR methods that you can get from published methods. However, I've not seen any um, kits that actually are able to differentiate rickettsias. And many of them, if they do, usually only do for SFG, NTG, and Orangea. But they are still also not able to differentiate between species. Um, PCR tend to be very, very sensitive, and you can detect um, presence of rickettsial uh, antigen, sorry, antigen, uh, rickettsial nucleic acids in mixes with 10 copies of the target or even less in some assays. If we need to differentiate the species, then we can do downstream sequencing. Cell culture is something that we are trying to encourage. Not many laboratories do cell culture because, as I've highlighted before, of the security restrictions with rickettsial work. And not many people do cell culture nowadays. It requires a high level of competency, unfortunately. And the other challenge is the very long doubling time. A single rickettsia cell would, would reproduce and become two over an eight-hour period. For just to compare with E. coli, Escherichia coli, within the same period of eight hours, a single cell will become 16.8 million. Okay, so uh, trying to isolate rickettsia can take months. You know, um, just just to be able to see um, if your culture is successful and you've got cytopathic effect, which is what happens when your whole cell starts to die. So this is a bit blurry, sorry about that, but I was trying to show you what cytopathic effect means. So this is a picture from the ATCC, um, American Tissue Type Collection. And this is a picture of rickettsia assemboasis. It's grown in C636 cells, um, which is uh, aldo, ald, sorry, Aedes albopictus. So on the left, you have a confluent monolayer, um, and on the right is what happens when rickettsia assombiasis has infected the cell line, and you have a lot of cell death happening. So the, a lot of the empty areas that you're seeing is where the cells have died off and lifted off from, from the confluent monolayer. 
Now we move on to treatment. <clears throat> Before the discovery of antibiotics in the US, the cost, sorry, the mortality attributed to cat cell diseases was as high as 70% and in some locations even higher. Rickettsia rickettsii, and I think that its close cousin, Rickettsia parkeri, which was discovered only recently in the 80s, uh, highly brilliant and caused high mortality compared to other Rickettsias in our region, such as Japonica and Honiae and so on. The treatment is still the same. Um, as Dr. Timothy Williams have mentioned before, you can treat with either doxycycline or chloramphenicol. And it's usually very highly effective. However, that's the challenge because once you treat the patient, even after the, just the first dose, half an hour after the first dose, the sample that you collect from the patient is useless. You can't use it for diagnostics, um, especially PCR, because the antibiotic is extremely efficient in getting rid of um, the organism. For more serious cases, um, it is recommended that patients are given doxycycline intravenously. Now, studies recently have shown that there's no signs of antimicrobial resistance. Um, I think this can be attributed uh, mainly to the biology of the organism itself because of the long doubling time it requires for it to reproduce and multiply. Um, it's not able to, any changes, significant changes to its genetic code is not established well enough. So we, we go to, I think, I believe, the third last slide, which is the challenges faced with Rickettsial work. So as highlighted before, the challenge is in diagnosis. Um, samples have to be collected within very narrow windows. Okay, so example, if we use IFA serology, you can only diagnose and confirm the patient has had Rickettsial infection two to three weeks after. So you actually have to start doxycycline on suspicion rather than treating them um, as a response confirmed after diagnosis. PCR requires a very narrow window where the patient has to have the sample collected within the, the first, first one to five days of symptoms showing. So thus we are uh, looking at developing a more robust and efficient diagnostic system. When I say we, I'm referring to the um, the Rickettsial Pathogens Track Reduction Network, funded by DETRA, which is a conglomerate of Rickettsial scientists from around the world. Um, and it includes a lot of experts from the US, Australia, Singapore, Malaysia. Uh, I've got some colleagues in Malaysia involved in that as well. And we are looking at developing quite, quite a number of essays at the moment. Uh, another challenge is that in our region, a lot of information is unknown. Um, you know, we need to encourage or try to allow for rickettsial disease to be included in studies where possible to better understand it alongside other diseases that cause febrile illness, similar to what Dr. Timothy Williams have done. Um, a lot of studies in our region has not been targeting rickettsias by itself, but that's understandable because the number of cases caused by rickettsial disease is a lot lower than other more pressing diseases such as malaria, dengue, in our tropics. Um, however, um, the challenge again is then we don't know what's causing disease out in the bush in the rural areas. Um, just to highlight example, Rickettsia honii has been known to be in Thailand for many, many years. However, its prevalence in Thailand is unknown. The bacteria has never been isolated in culture. Um, so a lot of the information that is known about Rickettsia honiae in Thailand is as a result of small studies that uncover or discover information about Rickettsia honiae by chance, serendipitously. <clears throat> now in many countries, in, in some countries that I know, Rickettsia disease is a reportable disease, which I believe it is in Malaysia, it is in Singapore, However, some of our neighbors, um, how much of their population is actually being afflicted? Um, and if cases coming to the hospital is um, recorded, whether they're rickettsial disease or not. Now, in, in the effort to expand on work on rickettsias, biosafety is still a major concern. Um, and laboratories need to do good risk assessment um, to ensure proper measures are in place. 
So trying to put together a BSL-3 laboratory can be cost prohibitive. Um, the maintenance, the equipment, the training, and so on. So hopefully what I've presented have given you a, a brief introduction into, into Rickettsias. Fortunately, we have three reference laboratories worldwide. Um, they are very helpful. They are very willing to support and, and um, how do you say, it? Um, encourage research. Um, there's one in Australia, Geelong, Victoria. That's led by Dr. John Stenos. Um, that's the French lab, um, led by Professor Pierre-Edouard Founier. <clears throat> and the last one is the CDC itself in Atlanta, Georgia. I've worked with Professor Pierre-Edouard Founier and Dr. John Stenos very closely in the past. I've visited their labs. I actually spent three years in, in Australia with Dr. John Stenos and I think about a few weeks with Pierre-Edouard in his lab. And they have a lot of, of resources that are, they are very willing to share with colleagues around the world to try and um, help them understand their Rickettsial problem locally. Okay, and next please, next, next slide. And that's my contact. You are more than welcome to drop me an email if you have any more questions um, outside of um, today. And if you need further information, please, you're more than welcome to reach out. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, Yazid. I think we will move on to, uh, we've got about 15 minutes to go through some of the questions that have come out in Slido. Um, I think the first question is asked, um, what specimens were used for the PCR for rickettsiosis? Uh, is serology the, the, the gold standard for diagnosis? Um, anybody wants to take it on? Um, yeah, sure, I can do it. So for, for serology, um, it's serum or plasma. So if you're working in the hospital, you can either use the EDTA blood tubes will give you plasma or the gold top tubes, which the SCT, SST blood tubes will give you serum. Or if you don't have the gold colored liquid from the top, and that can be used for serology. For PCR, if it's from a patient, um, you can either do a PCR um, of the Buffy coat. So if you're not familiar with the Buffy coat, but you know what blood tubes are, if you look at the EDTA blood tube, the purple top ones, um, if you do a centrifuge of the tube, you have a layer of white color material between the plasma and the clot. Uh, that's the Buffy layer, and you can do a PCR on that after DNA extraction. The other option for patient would be to actually biopsy the SCAR. So if you have an SCAR, like I showed you in the picture of the patient in Western Australia, if you can get permission to do a biopsy, you can do a PCR on that and you should be able to get a high amount of um, rickettsias. Now, a colleague of mine has actually shown that you don't have to do a biopsy because that can be very painful for the patient. So swabbing the SCAR and doing a PCR of the actual swab of the SCR itself would should be able to help you with a diagnosis of it by PCR. Yeah. Uh, as, as a follow-up question, Yazid, uh, yeah. mm. in, for in clinical labs, uh, uh, the PCRs are not widely available. Uh, increasingly, uh, the reference labs, at least in Asia, are discontinuing. We used to have uh, IIT indirect uh, immunoperoxidase test. Uh, which seems to be being discontinued. Uh, is ELISA, commercial ELISA available and is it useful? Um, okay, commercial ELISA is not available. Um, there are, however, kits on the web, such as the ones by Pen. I think, I'm sorry, I think PenBio <coughs> stopped making their kits. There's just no business for it. Um, there are other kits that a colleague of mine, uh, George Vargas, uh, I think he's at a Catholic college in India has recently looked at, but I can't remember for the life of me the name of that kit. Um, but I can share it with, with you guys later once I picked it up. There are some specificity is not as good. Um, there are some that are well designed, um, but how long they'll stay on the market, I can't guarantee. And I can't put any, any recommendations out. Now, the list of the laboratories that I showed you earlier, a lot of, like Singapore, we sent our samples to the lab in Australia. Um, the cost is 
quite quite low. Uh, it's quite affordable, and if you need to develop or implement your own essays locally, I, I should be able to assist with that as well and point you to the right papers to use or the essays to use and develop it locally. It will be a lot cheaper than buying kits. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Uh, next question to Timothy. As a district hammer, how do we design when to prescribe doxycycline? I think, uh, okay, so a patient comes in with fever, undifferentiated, so you don't really know which particular organ is involved. Uh, so you're just coming with fever alone. Huh? So we, we normally have a few differentials, dengue, malaria, typhoid, uh, typhoid um, scrub typhus, leptospirosis, isn't it? That's, that's our usual, uh, compared to you know, a person coming with frank pneumonia or urinary tract infection or a, a boil or a skin infection. So, so when a patient just comes in with fever alone with, with no organ involvement or multi-organ involvement, and they are negative for dengue, and they're negative for malaria, uh, then I would consider using doxycycline. Maybe if they're ill, then I'll give doxycycline and capriaxone for these patients. So that, that would uh, broadly cover uh, uh, most bacterial infections. Um, of course, uh, uh, don't forget about melioidosis as well. So uh, there's, there's no real uh, hard uh, answer that I can give. What you can say is if the patient is not responding to the usual antibiotics that you give, you can give doxy or you can give doxycycline if there are no contraindications uh, as the first line drug uh, for these patients who come in with undifferentiated fever. I agree. I mean, uh, the other thing, of course, is I think your study also showed you know, rural background, epidemiological history. Yes, yes, huh? yes exactly. Uh, true, true. So if you're coming from uh, yeah, a district hospital, you come. As compared, you're coming from a city, you know, like Kuala Lumpur or what, or, or if you're coming from a place where there's uh, rubber estates or palm oil or fringe of forest, which people are working as farmers and all that, that epidemiology history will actually assist you a lot. Uh, any reason, uh, next question, of course, uh, both of you can find answers. Any reason no ESCA was found? Uh, we... I mean, uh, uh, answer first. I think uh, first of all, you have to look hard for an ESCA, isn't it? Mm. You have to look for it in the folds of the skin and all that. And it may be small, it may be big, or people may just miss it. Uh, so that may be the reason why an ESCA is not found because you don't you didn't even suspect the cat's ears, isn't it? So you're yeah, mm. not using, and you really need to actually expose the patient, expose the patient, take out all the clothes, and look at the the groin areas and all that. So that may be the reason why, that might be the reason why escal is not found. You know. But in, in any case, there may not have been an escal. It's a, as it said, uh, escal is most likely not there in the first place. Okay. Yes, it, yeah. um, just, just to add, yeah, I can add a bit. Um, this is something that me and my colleagues in the field of recatcher has discussed quite quite why an SCAR might not appear at the bite site. Um, it could be because that the actual pathogen itself did not uh, form a beachhead on the patient's skin because an SCAR is basically an infection of the epidermal layer by the pathogen itself. So it may have directly entered the bloodstream and continue to infect the epidermal layers within um, uh, or spread via the vascular system. So it didn't, um, aside from that, <clears throat> it could also be um, underlying causes. The patient had, may have a compromised immune system. So an SCAR may not, not develop. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, and also the infectious dose might be also, also an attributing factor. Yeah. But no, no evidence to support any of this. A lot of it is just conjecture because we are not allowed to experiment on humans. Uh, and then next, uh, the last question here, Ms. Lido, is uh, uh, any relation to post-tick bite Lyme disease in US? Um, no, because that's a totally different species. Lyme, Lyme disease is called by, caused by Borrelia. Um, and as you know, ticks are notorious for carrying a lot of diseases. Um, there are a lot of viruses that ticks can transmit. Uh, there's, I think in Russia, they've got 
they've got a big problem with viruses that are tick-borne. Um, and so rickettsias versus Lyme disease, yes, they are totally different species, totally different bacteria. They may share similar vectors. They may share a similar mode of transmission, but the biology of both diseases are very, very different. Thanks, uh, well, just, just a last question from me, Yazid. Uh, we clinicians sometimes, because we don't have IV doxycycline, sometimes you find us using IV ciprofloxacin or IV macrolides, IV azithromycin, and, 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 and treat it, and uh, we think it works. Uh, any data for that? Um, not that I'm aware of, but I think you should ask Dr. William because <laughs> I'm not a clinician, sorry. So, uh, no, yeah, any, I any, any, any susceptible, like any susceptible testing done in this particular group? Uh, no, no. Yeah, unfortunately, no one to my knowledge has done um, susceptibility testing for rickettsias. Yeah. Um, and also, yeah, there might be some studies looking at comparing the different um, antibiotics on how effective, but because doxycycline is so effective, people just fall back on it at the end of the day. Yeah, but there might be studies that I'm not aware of. Yeah, probably. Mm. Timothy, anything else? I think uh, uh, when we don't have doxycycline, IV doxycycline, the patient is very ill out of desperation and you know as you know in the ICUs where marrow panel doesn't work then we don't know what to do then uh, if the patient fits the profile uh, the epidemiological uh, characteristics and this and that I think um, uh, it, it, it's quite prudent I think to consider IV azithromycin uh, mm. IV azithromycin when, when the usual antibiotics are not working uh, uh, thank you for thank you for thank you for both of you, uh, Timothy, William, and Yazid for for enlightening us on rickettsiosis. A nice change from COVID for a while uh, to talk about rickettsiosis. Uh, I think with that I will end and I will, I will pass pass the this to Dr. Go who wants to say something with regards to the whole NIH series that has been so wonderfully conducted so far. Uh, Dr. Go. Thank you, Suresh. Uh, everyone out there. And Timothy William and Mohamed Azizat. We are finally coming to an end for this clinical update of uh, COVID-19. We have done 13 series of uh, webinar on COVID-19 and this last one of the series is very important. And uh, I would like to thank uh, audience who are participating and certainly uh, I want to take this opportunity to thank a few people who are instrumental to this uh, clinical updates webinar. First is Dr. Woon Yon Liang, who actually suggested this idea during the peak of, of a COVID-19 pandemic. At the time, we can we see that many people want to know more about COVID-19, but we are just too busy uh, managing uh, COVID-19 in some hospital. With that, I actually got hold of uh, Lechman and then Suresh, and we got permission from our DG to have this bigger updates. So all this was done very peacefully, uh, very fast. And uh, we, this uh, webinar will not be a success without the technical team consisting of Dr. Chu Cheng Hoon and her uh, colleagues uh, such as Yip Yang Yi, um, Tan Ming Sui, Lin Ming Sui and a few other colleagues in the ICR, Institute for Clinical Research and the ICT team in NIH. Um, without their hard work and this amazing talent in learning how to do webinar on this uh, social media and not only one platform, many platforms. I also want to thank CRC team in Sunai Bulo because many of the speakers are under the uh, team, Dr. Suresh Kumar's team, and also CRC HKL. Um, besides that, the moderators, um, I'd like to thank Dr. Christopher Lee. He has been always uh, very supportive and always behind us and, and has been moderating most of the session. And also Dr. Hisham Shah, our Deputy Director General of Research and Technical Support, who has moderated a few sessions. Uh, this is incredible work. I think this teamwork is amazing. The uh, IT technology has made us very close together. I sincerely hope uh, that the team this uh, webinar on COVID-19 provide you with um, 
updated information and very in-depth information from the clinician team, from the laboratories such as IMR and NKAK, as well as from the public health and the primary care. And uh, we have now a, a foreign speaker. So uh, we, from the bottom of my heart, I wish you all the best and we all pray that pandemic COVID-19 will end in Malaysia soon. So Suresh can go back to his own way, own life. Uh, all of us can uh, go back to living life before, but this is wish fulfilling. Uh, hopefully is something that uh, will lie soon. But uh, if not, when the situation arises, when there are new topics, we can reactivate this group. So once again, I want to thank all this in front and behind the scenes and the team in NIH in ICR and in CRC and the whole MOH team for this successful webinar series. Thank you again. Good afternoon. Bye.